says, and they also honored us in many ways. And when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. After three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island. And landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, we circled round and reached Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew, and the next day, we came to Puteoli, where we found brethren, and were invited to stay with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Apiforum and three inns. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Now, when we had come to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And Father, we just humbly ask as we continue now in our worship in this time as we've sang and prayed and done other things to honor and to worship you, that our hearts would be in an attitude of worship as we open the word of God together, to let it speak to our hearts by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, that we would have an ear to hear what your Spirit wants to say to this part of your church through this particular portion of the word of God this morning. So Lord, you know what we need and what we're asking. Please prepare us accordingly. And we ask you would speak to us in personal ways now through the power of your spirit's ministry. And we ask that expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, sometimes our life's journey can kind of have some pathways, maybe some detours, maybe even some experiences that we didn't expect were going to be a part of the way. And yet, nonetheless, ultimately, the purpose in each part of those experiences and pathways and detours and the trip through life, God somehow in an amazing way is able to always still use. God is able to take, the Bible says, even things that were a curse and turn them into a blessing. The Bible says for those who love God and are called according to his purpose that he can make all things, all things, work together ultimately for the good for our lives as his children. And especially for the follower of the Lord who wants to use our life for his purposes, the heart of God is to use each and every one of us as we're journeying down these roads and the detours that are part of them and maybe even the experiences that we go through. God wants to use all those things as we're on our life's journey towards heaven to use us to explain and share to other people about God's plan to explain to people God's purpose for their life and a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and how to experience that. And we really see that being illustrated as we conclude looking really at Paul the Apostle's uh, experiences as we finish out the book of Acts here, what's given to us in this historical record. Remember earlier, many years prior, God had given to Paul a promise the Lord Jesus himself spoke to Paul on one night and told him that in the same way he had testified of the Lord Jesus in Jerusalem and in many other places that he also was now going to bear witness of the Lord in Rome. Now, how exactly that was going to happen, Paul had no idea. And like you and I, a lot of times we may sense where the Lord's leading us, but ultimately, though he gets us there, usually we kind of realize that was not the way I thought it was going to come to pass. That wasn't the way I thought the journey would happen or how the Lord would get me from point A to point B. But nonetheless, 
Paul ends up, we see by the end of this chapter here, arriving in Rome. And the way it happened in brief, remember, was as Paul went through some difficult experiences, he was unjustly treated, he was arrested, he was falsely accused. Paul exercised his right ultimately as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar there in Rome. And it's been quite the transport process, as we've been seeing in our recent studies, to get Paul and all these other prisoners that are on their way from Caesarea over to Rome. It's a long journey from Caesarea to Rome. But Paul, remember, spent two weeks, we saw, in a horrible storm at sea. They then endured a horrific shipwreck on an island, the island of Malta. And then even after he got there, he goes through a dangerous snake bite. And yet, nonetheless, in all those things, the Lord's preserving Paul because he was not yet at Rome, because he hadn't got to where God had promised he was going to bring him. And the Lord preserved him. And now the past three months, the Lord's been using Paul on the island of Malta that he shipwrecked on to do some really fruitful ministry. We left off last time seeing that in verses seven through nine. It says that in that region, there was an estate there of a leading citizen named Publius. And he received Paul and the others who were on the boat, entertained them courteously for three days. Verse 8 says to us, and it happened that the father of Publius was sick with a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed and laid hands on him and the Lord healed him. So a miracle happened, as we saw last time, through the work of Paul and his prayers uh, for this sick father of Publius. And that sort of brought a community-wide ministry as word spread. Verse 9, we left off, says, and when this was done, then the rest of those on the island who had diseases came and were healed. Now, we know from verse 11, this has been going on for about three months. So three months of unplanned, but yet very fruitful ministry. And a lot of times that can tend to be how ministry happens sometimes. Uh, Paul may not have wanted to shipwreck on the island of Malta, but there were some people on the island of Malta, natives that Jesus loved. And he wanted to help and he wanted to minister to. And he had no problem letting Paul struggle through a storm and shipwreck right on that island. So some good fruitful ministry could take place there. And sometimes that's part of how the detours work in our lives. Because God turns a shipwreck into something that ends up being a strategic opportunity for greater good. And look, folks, even the times when we may go through a hard storm and kind of a just a shipwreck type experience, uh, the Lord can use that for a greater good. He can take those kind of things and use them in strategic ways, and that may be a strategic way we end up ministering to someone or end up doing something that can be really fruitful for God's purposes in all of our lives and for those that we can perhaps reach an impact. So verse 10 goes on to tell us that they also honored us in many ways, Luke says. And then when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. Now, take note of this. After an experience of great loss through shipwreck, they lose the entire vessel. They can't travel anymore. The the boat's destroyed. They lose all their cargo and precious commodities and all the valuable things they had on board. But notice, after an experience of great loss through shipwreck, verse 10 describes to us that God found a way to restore back to them everything that they needed for the rest of their journey. Boy, I love the description here because, remember, they had made a bad decision, those on the boat anyway, 
to do something they shouldn't have done. And as a result of their bad decision, they endured a horrible storm, and it resulted in a shipwreck, which caused them to end up losing many valuable things. And they barely escape with their own lives, but after barely escaping with their own lives and being empty-handed, what does God do here after a time on this island in verse 10? Notice, how were they ever going to carry on? They've lost everything. They just shipwrecked. Everything valuable has been taken away from them. And here they are empty-handed. How are they going to carry on? How are they going to regroup? How are they going to move forward? I'll tell you how, by the grace of God. And by the grace of God, God moves on the heart of these native people who don't even know them. And notice, God puts special favor into the people's hearts. We saw last time, it says that the natives were showing them unusual kindness. And that unusual kindness kept carrying on for the next three months to the point where here in verse 10, it says, now they honored us in many ways. That is, they treated us really special, Luke's saying. They, they, in lots of different ways, they were just being very honorable and respectful and blessing us. And more than that, he says, they provided such things as were necessary. Now, we're going to see in the next few verses that also included even a brand new ship to finish the rest of their voyage all the way over to Italy. And I love this picture here because it shows by the gracious, kind blessing of God, God orchestrates restoring back everything that they had lost in the storm and in the shipwreck. And God has a way of doing that in his kindness and his goodness. What a beautiful picture of what God often could do in our lives after a really bad decision, right? Everyone in this room, I'm sure, could find at least one time, if not a few in our lives, where maybe we made a bad decision or series of bad decisions and it brought a storm and worse, we kind of led us to a shipwreck where we just kind of literally shipwrecked somewhere because of what happened and we lost and suffered great loss. And you know what? Isn't it amazing whether you've seen it yet or you continue to wait in hope and faith, you will see God can restore. God can restore, the Bible says, the years the locusts have eaten. God can restore back in his wonderful ways and his perfect timing and, and, and unique ways. He can restore back what we completely lost and give back to us what's necessary to carry on. Or if perhaps maybe you were on board with someone else who made some poor decisions, that would be like Paul and Luke. Uh, they didn't make the bad decisions, but because they were on board with some people who made some bad decisions, they suffered all the loss and shipwreck as well. And if that would be your case, look, you continue to trust the Lord in faith. He's going to take care of you. And maybe somebody else shipwrecked you, but it doesn't mean that God can't restore back to you what was lost because someone else shipwrecked you and caused you to struggle in some situation. God is a way of restoring back. I love this. Says they were treating them honorably and they provided what was necessary to carry on. And that ends up being, notice verse 11, after three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship. That's exactly what they lost, an Alexandrian ship. And now they're sailing away on an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers which had wintered at the island. So after wintering there on that island during the dangerous travel season, three months later, they now board another ship and they start back again on their journey towards Italy. And it just so happened, not by coincidence, but by God's foresight, lo and behold, another Alexandrian grain ship, and that's what these were, these Alexandrian ships were grain ships taking grain from Egypt, which is basically the granary of the known world in that day, 
over to the area of Italy and Rome predominantly where the Roman Empire capital was. There just so happened to be docked right there in Malta on this tiny little speck of dirt out in the middle of the open water, a a kind of small island with just native people there just so happened to have wintered there, one of these Alexandrian grain ships waiting out the winter season, and it provides an opportunity to be then the vehicle to move them onward. Here the ship was just going about its normal travels, and it ends up being now the vehicle the instrument that God uses to help his servants to move them onward. And, you know, God always plans ahead for his people. He's so good like that. We may not even be planning ahead, but God is already in his providence, which means looking ahead. He's seeing down the road for you a month from now, a year from now, and he's already coordinating things and putting things in place and having them docked and lined up and ready so that then when we come to that moment, the Lord already providentially is prepared in advance and has just what's necessary for us as we need it to move onward in our lives. And how amazing. Now there's another ship. They're able to board this and continue on with their journey. Verse 12 says, landing at Syracuse, we then stayed for three days. So they travel 85 miles from Malta to Syracuse. And the port of Syracuse was on the island of Sicily, which is now a part of Italy. So they're getting much closer at this point. Verse 13 says, and then from there, we circled around and reached Regium, and Regium now places them at a port on the mainland of Italy itself, down at kind of the toe portion. If you ever looked at Italy on a map and there's kind of that toe portion, well, that's where they're at now. They're now at the toe portion of the mainland of Italy at the bottom. They've arrived there. Verse 13 goes on to say, and then after one day, the south wind blew, and the next day we came to Puteoli. Now, you know they're in Italy by that name, right? Puteoli, as an Italian, I can recognize that. They're, they're, they're moving their way now by the south wind, pushing them northward up the coast. They come to the port of Puteoli, and that port was basically there as the chief port of the Bay of Naples. And it was one of the predominant ports where all the supplies to Rome would basically come and be brought through. So it was a major seaport the uh, Puteoli was, and from Puteoli now to Rome, the rest of the way would be a journey by land. This would be the end of the sea voyages. They would now travel from land further onwards towards Rome. So verse 14 goes on to tell us, and there we found brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. Notice what happens. They find Christians dwelling there in Italy a little ways away from the city of Rome, but there in Italy at this port of Puteoli, they find believers there. It says, we found them. The word found means discovered. They discovered brethren, that is brothers and sisters in Christ, spiritual family. There were converts to Christ when they arrived there. Now keep in mind, historically, Paul, the apostle himself, has never gone to the mainland of Italy yet. He's never brought the gospel there. He didn't do any church planning there or missionary work there, which means this. The gospel of Jesus reached Italy by just other faithful servants of the Lord who had gotten converted, had a heart to want to minister for Christ and share the gospel. And at some point, they bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to Italy. And there are now believers there and churches established And it just reminds us, can the Lord use prominent ministers, missionaries? Yes, of course. 
but he doesn't need them. The Lord can work through any individual believer who's willing to let their life be available for the Lord, to bring the gospel to a community, to you know, minister in a new location, and, and to lead people to Christ. And anyone willing to let their life be useful, we don't know exactly how the gospel got to Italy. Well, we do know it was through the Holy Spirit, through some individual who was willing to just open their mouth and tell at least one other person about Jesus, and then people started getting saved. And then churches started getting established there. And Paul arrives and he finds believers. He says, we found brethren. How wonderful it must have been. We found believers there in Italy. And they stayed with them for a, a week-long period because notice verse 14 says they were invited to stay with them. That is, the believers provided hospitality. They invited Luke and uh, Paul and uh, those who were believers to come and enjoy some Christian fellowship, maybe some encouragement. And I believe that was probably a great blessing for Paul and Luke and the things that they had just gone through, that whole storm and the shipwreck and the snake bite. I mean, at this point in time, you know, considering all the years of ministry building up the cumulative effect and now the recent season, you know, Paul's, Paul's kind of needing probably a little R&R spiritually. You know, the best of men are just men at best. Uh, and we've watched Paul go through many different missionary experiences. We've watched the book of Acts covers about a 30-year period um, in total of church history. So uh, Paul's been serving the Lord, you know, for years and years, a few decades now. And, and, and he's being now built up as a man. I'm sure it was very encouraging just to find believers there and to be able to spend some time with them and to be encouraged himself. Verse 14 says, And so we then went toward Rome... And from there, when the brethren heard about us, that is from the areas around Rome, they came to meet us as far as Appi Forum and three inns. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. So as their journey towards Rome continues, notice more and more believers now are coming from the church in Rome. We know there's a church there. They're coming and meeting Paul before he even arrives they're coming out to connect with him. Luke says they came to meet us. He says there in the text, as far as, verse 15, Appy Forum and three inns. Three inns was about 43 miles of a journey from Rome. That's quite a journey. Uh, Appy Forum was about 33 miles away. The question, more interestingly, is how did these distant believers over in Rome in the church that was established there how did they even know about this man, the Apostle Paul? And why are they so excited and interested in wanting to come and see him that they can't even wait until he gets to his city, that as soon as they hear he's nearby their community, they'll travel 30, 40 miles because they just they want to go see him. They're so excited to go see him. Well, certainly one of the answers to that is because a few years prior to this, Paul, hearing about the gospel spreading and that a church had gotten established in the capital city of the Roman Empire in Rome itself. Paul, hearing about that and being moved by the Holy Spirit, writes this wonderful letter that we now have in our New Testament to the church in Rome, referred to as Romans. And Paul writes this letter to this church and believers in Rome that he did not plant, that he had never met yet. And think about the book of Romans of New Testament letters and even letters in the Bible, it has got some of the greatest instruction doctrinally about the plan of salvation. I mean, this wonderful, incredible letter, the, the, the letter of Romans. So no doubt the believers there were so thankful for how much the letter of Romans helped them 
as Christians and as a church, and they're so blessed by what Paul took the time to write. We, we know it as 16 chapters, but it was just a big, lengthy letter with all this great teaching and instruction doctrinally and then practically in chapters 12 through 16 of how to really live for the Lord and follow him in practical ways. So they're so thankful for Paul, this great letter, and they feel a level of connection to him. So no doubt that's why they're excited to go out and meet him right away. This is somebody really special to them who administered to them in a very wonderful way. And so they're excited to go meet him. Now, here's what I find interesting. Instead of Paul acting like a celebrity that they're so excited to come meet him, they're traveling 30, 40 miles away. Wow, the apostle Paul, he's in our area. Let's go see him. Well, rather than Paul welcoming all these visitors like a celebrity and, you know, signing books, you want me to sign your copy of Romans you know, and, and taking selfies, you know, and all that kind of stuff. What does Paul do? Look at the end of verse 15. It says, when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When Paul saw them like a humble servant of the Lord, people he loved and ministered to and prayed for and invested in, he was rejoicing, it says, thanking God and taking courage. That is being encouraged because they were doing so well spiritually. And Paul thought, awesome. This is wonderful. It's so great to see that you're walking close with the Lord and doing well. And see, when we see somebody that we care about doing well in the Lord, maybe somebody that you pray for, Maybe somebody you've invested in spiritually. Maybe somebody that you try and help in their walk with the Lord. And you see them doing well with the Lord like Paul. Doesn't it make you just thank God? And it's so encouraging. Awesome. Someone else that did not become a spiritual casualty. He's doing good. He's following Jesus. She's doing well. She's still serving the Lord and, and walking close with him. And it's such a wonderful and encouraging thing. And let me say this on the other side of that coin. Do you want to know what one of the most wonderful ways you can encourage and be a blessing to other believers? Just walk close with Jesus yourself. There is something so encouraging, so refreshing, so edifying about seeing someone else walk close with Jesus. It just breathes fresh wind into our sails. And, you know, if you want to be an encouragement to other people, you just walk real close with Jesus yourself. And you will become such an encouragement to other people because when they're around you, it will inspire them to want to walk close with the Lord. It'll encourage them to see what God's doing in your life and it will inspire them to thank God and to be encouraged in their own walk with the Lord. Look at chapter or verse 16, the first part of that verse. Now, when we had come to, you see that word? Rome. Wait a minute. They finally made it to Rome. Been through a lot along the way, haven't they? But God preserved them through it all. The Lord Jesus stood with them and he never stopped working through the trials and the persecution and the times when they were wondering, when is this ever going to happen? And Lord, I thought you gave me a promise and I still don't see anything yet. And then the storm and the shipwreck and the, the difficulties and the hardships and the snake bite, but eventually they ultimately get to their divine destination. Because when the Lord says, this is where I'm taking you, he's going to get you there. And remember that as far as heaven. Uh, we may not be going to Rome, but there's one place we definitely are destined for if we're following and know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and that's eternity. And one day you're going to see 
but you're finally going to get there. And when you're going to arrive, and I can't imagine what it was like for Paul and these guys when they finally stepped foot in the city of Rome and realized, wow, the Lord got us here. Amazing how the Lord has a way to work through all those things and they arrive at their destination now in verse 16 says when they arrived at rome the centurion then delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard but paul uniquely was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him so look paul's given unique favor as he had before by the commander of these roman soldiers and he's allowed basically to live under what we might call house arrest Uh, i guess probably the best way we could define it he's allowed to live in his own private dwelling place have some freedom yet he's under constant guardianship still of a roman soldier it says there in verse 16 that the soldier guarded him and what that's referring to is basically on rotating shifts Somewhere probably from four to six hour shifts, we're not exactly certain, but somewhere like every four to six hours in a rotating shift, Paul would be chained to a new Roman guard and they would transfer out every four to six hours. Now, can you imagine what that was like being chained to Paul, the apostle, just a few feet away for four to six hours straight? on rotating shifts can you imagine as you're stuck together with paul the apostle and he's there and the conversations that you heard as people came in and out and visited him and paul's talking about the lord and you know discipling people and doing bible studies in that roman guard he just got to sit there (laughs) he's just chained to him can you imagine those quiet moments or the times when others weren't on the conversations you were forced to have with paul the apostle they're both sitting there they're just two guys stuck together for six hours now most men can sit for probably about four hours and not talk Uh, that does tend to i notice be a difference with with guys they can just sit there quiet but eventually some kind of conversation has to ensue so um uh, what are you chained for well we got two more hours Uh, how about i let you know and and paul would just start testifying and explaining his personal experience and how he came to the lord jesus christ see paul wasn't chained to those soldiers those soldiers were chained to him god gets the most mileage out of everything philippians 1 paul writes during this time and listen what paul says he says now i want you to know brothers and sisters that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel as a result it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. So Paul said, look, what's happened to me? Yeah, it looks like I'm chained to these guards, but they're really chained to me. And what's happened to me is, is causing people to end up coming to Christ because for four to six hours, I have a captive audience with an individual. They can't leave their post and I can share the gospel with them. And I can talk to them about the things of the Lord. And, you know, it's amazing. Maybe you feel like you are chained to a job or chained to a person or somebody you got to work with. Mm could be a reason for that Uh, paul here was capitalizing on that making the most of the opportunity verse 17 says and it came to pass then after three days that paul called the leaders of the jews together so paul's not a glutton for punishment though he's had a lot of challenges with the jewish religious leaders he just always sought to influence the jews first and now in a new area wanting to respect the local jewish leadership there in rome that existed and be proactive he asked for them notice verse 17 says to come to him for a meeting so they come together to his house and verse 17 
says, so when they had come together, he said to them, men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. So Paul here, as you can tell from his language, he sort of assumes that this group of Jewish religious leaders must know all the background of his life and all these accusations that have made against him in time past. And so he kind of here just starts to recount to them in verses 17 to 19, a summary of the events of all the past few chapters that we've been discovering and and studying together. He he says, look, I want you to know I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't violated our people's customs, the laws of Moses. But he says, yet nonetheless, I was attacked and, and I was arrested. And being examined by them, they were looking to put me to death. But he says, they found nothing of which was a cause to put me to death. And he says, ultimately, when the Jews, verse 19, began to speak against me still... I was compelled and I I had to appeal to Caesar. I felt it was the right thing to do. And he says, and that's why I'm here now. He's kind of just summarizing the past events. Verse 20 says, and for this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and to speak with you because he says, for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. So Paul is a rabbi once these other Jewish religious leaders to know the reason he was sitting there in chains and arrested and living as a prisoner at this point in his life. He says, I wanted to speak to you now, particularly because it's for the hope of Israel, our own people, Paul's saying, that I am bound with this chain. Now, the hope of Israel was a reference to the hopeful expectation that the people of Israel had that God was sending them a Messiah, a deliverer, a savior. God had predicted throughout the Old Testament and promised his people that he was going to send a deliverer, a king, someone who's going to come and save them ultimately. And the Jews lived in the hope of this coming king. And Paul here uses this interesting language because Paul came to realize that it was Jesus of Nazareth who was that expected hope that they had that he was the Messiah that God said that he was going to send, that he was the predicted savior and deliverer, and not to deliver them from Roman oppression as they wanted and as they believed that's how God would send a deliverer, but that Jesus was the deliverer to come to save his people from their sins and to deliver them from that punishment and penalty. And Paul says, it's my understanding and proclamation of the hope of Israel that's actually the reason I'm in chains right now. Now, what I find interesting is what a beautiful phrase used to describe here in the Bible, God's plan and the plan of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, the hope of Israel, because Jesus brings and brought hope to the nation of Israel, to the Jews, but he also brings hope to all of humanity. In fact, interestingly enough, listen to how in Titus chapter two, it's described God's plan of salvation through Christ It says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men looking for the blessed hope, the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. And that is what the Lord Jesus Christ came to bring. He came to bring hope. The absolute expectation of coming good. That's what biblical hope is. Not, I, I hope, I hope something good happens or I hope I make it to heaven. No, biblical hope is the absolute expectation of coming good. It is the assurance that something good is coming because God is bringing it and God has promised it and God doesn't lie and God's promises never fail. And it's the hope that I won't be punished for my sins because Jesus was punished for my sins. It's the hope that I'm no longer going to have to experience hell, but that I have the absolute assurance I'm going to be brought into heaven to be with my Lord because what he did was sufficient to give me access to heaven. And it's the hope that there is something wonderful beyond this life, beyond the grave, to live with a sense of hope and the blessed hope that the Lord's coming back to bring us home to be with him. Verse 21 goes on to say, and then they said to Paul in response, we neither receive letters from Judea concerning you, nor, they say, have any of the brethren who came here reported or spoken any evil of you. So though Paul assumed they heard all kinds of bad things about him, he just made that assumption and all the accusations about his past. Apparently, they had heard nothing about these things. Probably shocked Paul. You notice what they say there? They say, look, honestly, no one has come here and spoken evil of you at all. No one's ever come here and told us about your reputation or your background or all the accusations. We haven't heard any of those things. In a sense, God had protected Paul's reputation and not allowed all the accusations of his life and his past to make its way to Rome. God had protected from that happening, and that would now grant Paul opportunity to speak to these Jews about the Lord Jesus Christ. In essence, you might fairly say God restrained what could have happened to ensure what he wanted to happen. God restrained from the news and accusations that would have tarnished Paul's reputation to get to Rome because God wanted something to happen. God wanted to work through Paul's life while he was in Rome. And see, sometimes... God can and will do this even in our own lives. God has wonderful ways at times to bring about what he wants for us. And that may mean sometimes he will restrain something from our past or keep something from our past under the blood of Christ, out of the awareness of other people so that God ultimately can use us in a way that he wants to in the future or that that past won't hinder us for some good purpose God has or some highest ideal and what a wonderful thing that when God removes our sin it's not only just from his sight and his perspective but sometimes you know God can remove our past sin or maybe our past experiences in such a way that they don't then become a stumbling block for maybe something good has down the road in our future and here God had done this for Paul he had protected this bad news about him which were a bunch of horrible accusations coming to the forefront here. They, the people said, we, we've never heard any of this stuff, any evil against you. In fact, look what it goes on to say in verse 22. They actually set an appointment. It says, we desire to hear from you what you think concerning this sect. We know that it is spoken against everywhere. Now, you can tell it's a divine appointment because they say, you know what, in fact, We've heard about this sect, this spiritual sect of being followers of Jesus. And in fact, they say, uh, we were wondering what you think. 
we were wondering if maybe we could set an appointment and you could tell us a little bit more about this thing of being a follower of Christ and that you could enlighten us. So verse 23 says, so when they had appointed him a day, now you again, you know, that's a divine appointment when you got an appointment to tell people about the Lord Jesus. We want to hear what you think, Paul. We were actually wondering if you could enlighten us. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning to evening. So look what goes on there in verse 23. It describes Paul hosts a home study group for a day, a Jesus seminar, a Bible seminar, and he invites all these people over to his house And he begins to explain from God's word things about the kingdom of God and Christ and salvation. And his home Bible study meeting went on for quite a long time. You see what verse 23 says? From morning till evening. Can you imagine from morning to evening how much Paul the apostle could cover in multiple sessions all throughout the day? Answering questions and explaining things spiritually. And look what Paul explained In the text there, verse 23, look what Paul was explaining predominantly. It says he explained and testified of the kingdom of God, of the kingdom of God. The fact that there is a spiritual and eternal kingdom beyond this life, that beyond this physical temporal realm, there is a realm where the proper rulership of God is honored, the kingdom of God, a spiritual kingdom, an eternal kingdom where the goal of this life is, in a sense, to come into the awareness that that kingdom exists, where God is properly ruling the way he's supposed to from his throne, and therefore the goal for us as human beings is coming to a place where we realize there is another kingdom, God's kingdom, and that we need to submit our will to that throne, to the throne of the king who's sitting upon that kingdom And that we would turn ourselves over in our heart and let him rule from within our hearts. So that we might, therefore, as we do that, submitting to Jesus and kneeling to his throne, experience the kingdom of God internally in our hearts now. As we let the king rule over our hearts internally. And that then ultimately, as we do that, we would one day enter into that heavenly kingdom literally. When we actually experience and dwell in it firsthand and that is what people folks need to hear about and need to understand and paul knew that that people need to hear there is something beyond this life there is something beyond just all this physical practical existence here there is another kingdom there is an unseen realm there is a spiritual kingdom an eternal realm and it's important for people to come into the awareness of that and it's crucial that they then respond to that respond to this other kingdom that's why it says as well in verse 23 that paul was persuading them concerning jesus why because jesus is the door into that kingdom he's the door into the kingdom of god so paul kept the focus on who jesus was and what jesus did and what he offers persuading them to respond to jesus because he's the king on the throne and the one that is the doorway to experience that and look what he was using to give that explanation and the spiritual answers and to stir people it says verse 23 he was doing that from the law of moses and the prophets that's an explanation of the old testament scriptures 
Paul was using the word of God to answer spiritual questions and give explanation. An Old Testament Bible study that lasted from morning until evening. That's incredible. And here Paul really is just following the pattern of our Lord Jesus, who in Luke chapter 24, if you remember, when the two men were walking on the Emmaus Road, and it says they were struggling, thinking, we, we really were thinking maybe this Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, but, but then he was mistreated and he suffered and they killed him. And some are saying he rose back from the dead. And as they're struggling through that, it says in Luke 24 that Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, and all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and entered his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus used the law and the pictures and the types, the sacrifices, the shadows that foreshadowed things about the life of Christ and his work, the prophets, the prophetic books. And he took them through a Bible study and said, look, do you see how that speaks about me? Do you see how that describes my salvation and my ministry? And, and, and took them through expounding, man, I, I would wish we had the podcast of that Bible study. Man, I would love to hear that. And Paul here does the same thing now. He follows the pattern of his Lord. He's so familiar with the Old Testament, he can use the Old Testament to speak about the kingdom of God, to point people to Jesus, to even bring people to a place of salvation. Boy, what a great exhortation for us that we would become more familiar with the entirety of the scripture so that we have a good working knowledge that we can use any scripture to talk to people about God's kingdom and point people to Jesus and present spiritual truth. And Paul's doing that here with this group gathered. And we see the response in verse 24. It says, some were persuaded by the things which were spoken and some disbelieved. So you see the various responses. Some chose to believe and to respond in humble submission as Paul presented the gospel message of salvation through Christ. Others chose not to believe, they refused to accept it, and they hardened their hearts in rejection to what Paul was presenting them in their pride. And, you know, there are only always, folks, two responses to spiritual truth. That's all there are. There are two conditions spiritually that God sees on the earth of people. Those who are saved, children of God headed to heaven, and those who are not yet saved, who the Bible says are still children of the devil and unconverted and on their way to hell. Only two conditions, and there are only two responses to spiritual truth, and that is to humbly believe and receive the truth of God's word and the message of salvation through Christ and respond to it, or to harden your heart and pride and to choose, and I emphasize the word choose, to choose not to believe. To say, I, it's not that I can't believe that, I, I won't believe that. And our job is just to present the truth. We can't control the response. That's something of the free will of people they have a chance to do. And notice, even when Paul presented, I'm sure Paul did a good job. He was Paul the apostle. And it says, some believed, some were persuaded, others disbelieved. Verse 25, so when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had spoken one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, quoting from Isaiah 6, Go to this people and say, hearing they will hear and shall not understand. Seeing you will see and not perceive for the hearts of this people have grown dull and their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their ears 
or their eyes, excuse me, and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you, Paul says, that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. And this is the word that set them off and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. So we're told how this meeting and spiritual discussion comes to an end, much like a lot of Paul's meetings with the Jewish religious leaders at times. When Paul mentions that the spiritual reality is that the majority of Jews rejected Christ when he came to them, the Savior, and disbelieved, and that God now was offering the gospel to the other nations, the Gentile peoples, and that God specifically was sending Paul to the Gentiles, it caused great dispute. And we read in verse 25 and in verse 29 repeatedly that that was what caused them to depart. The majority of the religious Jews, as they heard things they didn't like, it offended them, it shut them down, and Paul here is referring to those things. Note with me, if you would, a a few things from these verses. First of all, we can tell, notice, that God's word foresaw and predicted that the Jewish people would generally, predominantly, reject Jesus of Nazareth when he came to them the first time as their Savior and Messiah. Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 6 in verses 26 and 27, showing that God clearly saw that they would hear and they would see the true reality about the Lord, yet they would sadly dismiss him. They would brush him aside. And that though they had clear evidence, they could see him with their own eyes. They were hearing him speak, God in the flesh, with their own words, that they would not perceive or understand because their rejection caused them to be blinded spiritually. And you notice God identifies in these verses that it was a heart issue because he says in verse 27, the hearts of this people have grown dull or calloused. That is, they've hardened their hearts because of constant rejection to the voice of God testifying to their hearts. They had willfully closed their eyes and chose not to see what God was showing them. And people can do that. God makes it so clear. God speaks and God speaks and his Holy Spirit testifies to the truth. But people can reject the voice of God speaking to their heart to a point where they then just choose to close their eyes and they don't want to see what God's trying to show them. They don't want to hear what God, but it's a heart issue as they're hardening their own heart. And the tragedy is, he says, less verse 27 they should understand and their hearts would turn that I would heal them. See, God wanted to help the people. He wanted to heal them. He wanted to save them. But they were forfeiting God's help in their life because they were stubbornly refusing to see what God was trying to show them and to hear what God was trying to tell them. And they were forfeiting God's own work in their lives. Notice secondly as well, that Paul believed the Holy Spirit inspired and gave the scriptures because he quotes Isaiah chapter six. You see what he says in verse 25? He says, the Holy Spirit spoke through Isaiah. Paul's indicating he believed in the spirit of God being the author behind the writer and the speakers that have given to us our scripture. He says it wasn't really Isaiah. The Holy Spirit was speaking through Isaiah. He believed it wasn't the words of men, but that this book that we now have fully canonized is the words of God himself, the divine words of God's spirit speaking forth through individuals who gave us the record of scripture that we have. That's why God's word is so powerful and God's word should be what we do use to communicate to people. 
because that's what won't come back void. The words of man can come back void, but the word of God has power and it's alive. Hebrews 4.12 says it, it convicts and like a sword it goes in and opens the heart and judges our thoughts and intents. Thirdly, notice also that Paul understood that God's plan was always to send the gospel of salvation to the Gentiles and that ultimately the Gentile people, that is all the other nations that aren't Jewish, would predominantly be the most receptive to the gospel. Do you see what he says in verse 28? He says, God has sent salvation to the Gentiles and they will hear it. They will hear it. The Gentile people would be the foremost recipients of the salvation of God in this time. Now, if you're a note taker, take note of or jot down. Romans 11.25 says that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, that scripture testifies that because the Jewish people in the first coming of Christ mainly, some believe, but mainly rejected Christ and blinded themselves, a judicial blindness is somewhat over their eyes. It says until now, the fullness of all the Gentile people come into the kingdom of God. It seems to some degree there is a full or set number of Gentile people who will receive Christ and enter the kingdom And perhaps, I'm just speculating, perhaps it's when that last Gentile convert, the full number, the final number, receives Christ and gets saved, that that may be what triggers the rapture of the church being removed from the earth and that last seven-year period where God begins to deal the 70th week of Daniel with the Jewish people and the nation of Israel once again, once the church is removed and that seven-year period happens, which we often refer to as the tribulation now what an amazing thing to think about the fullness of the gentiles when the fullness of the gentiles comes in you know it always makes me think if some person is that last number stop holding up the process when we present the gospel in a moment here if that's you please get saved we want to go out of here look at the last two verses how the book concludes It says, and then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house, received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with confidence. No one, look at this word, forbidding him. What a marvelous way for this book to end. To see the ministry of the Holy Spirit continuing to happen in an unhindered way. Paul couldn't go into synagogues. He's not going on missions trips anymore. But notice the ministry of the Spirit of God did not stop. Paul's now regulated to a house as a prisoner for two years. But notice through the Holy Spirit, says Paul, even in house ministry, he's still preaching the kingdom of God that is leading people to Christ in informal ways. And it says he is teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ, preaching the gospel so people could be saved teaching the word of God so that people could be discipled and grow as believers. And it says he continued to do this with confidence, no one forbidding or hindering him, the idea is. There was no no hindering influence. The Spirit's ministry kept happening and happening, and it kept moving forward and going and going in an unhindered way. And look, folks, that should be still to this day what the Holy Spirit is doing. The Spirit of God is not restricted. And now through every Christian, you and I, And through every generation of the church, the Holy Spirit wants to be doing the exact same thing. We should now, if you would, be living out 
Acts chapter 29, Acts chapter 30, Acts chapter 31. As the Holy Spirit finishes his process through our generation of the church. Let's stand together. Let's pray.